Good morning. Let's pray before we get into this word. I just, we got a lot to kind of get through, and I know the Lord's going to speak to us, but I want my heart to be ready. God, I pray. I pray, Father, that this word, Lord, when I think about your word, it's your word. It says, let there be, and there was. God, your word, God, spoke to nothing, and it became something. And so, Father, in, in our life today, you see the challenges that we face. You see the difficulties, God, that are daily. And I pray that your word will speak to us, God. I, nobody really came to hear Scott Brandon, but we want to know what Jesus Christ has already spoken and how your word is perpetual, how it always is speaking and always is applicable to our life. And so I ask, Holy Spirit, help us to hear your word. Help us to apply it to our life that we might give you the most praise and the most glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We are in our Ten Commandments series, and we are on number seven today. Look around. See who's not here. They more than likely are struggling with adultery. You need to pray for them and say, you know, Pastor Scott was on that adultery kick. I didn't see you this morning. Is there a reason why? Can I, can I pray for you in an unspoken request? No, don't do that. But, you know, uh, it's always fun. I know um, I'll just call them out. Um, Sean and uh, Delora Roberts, they said, we're not going to be here next week. Just so you know, Pastor Scott, we're going on vacation. Um, but, uh, but just know that we're good. We're not dodging bullets. So um, I'm glad that you guys are here this morning. So what is adultery? Man, this is a, a, a topic, you know, we all want to hear. We don't want to hear um, because we know the Lord likes to elevate that command. And so let me do a little bit of diligence this morning due diligence this morning, and then uh, my goal today is to not beat us down. I believe the Lord wants to strengthen us. Um, I know how pivotal and important um, marriage is, and so let's, let's engage into it. So first off, what is adultery? Uh, what, is that, what does that really speak to? You know, when you're, if, if you're, when you're talking about adultery, you're not talking about single people. That's fornication. We're talking about married people. The Lord said, thou shalt not commit adultery. He's talking about preserving the sanctity of the marriage. Leviticus 18, 20 tells us this. You shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife, or so make yourself unclean with her. Leviticus 20, 10 says, if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall be surely put to death. Uh, that was some hard stuff back then. Capital punishment was a real deal, but, but the Lord was serious he didn't say that about everything, but he said this about adultery, that if, if you do partake in the crime, there is a much greater penalty than the others. And so here we see that, that the Lord is very serious about this. Jesus' view, like he did with the sixth commandment in terms of, the, of murder, he elevated the scripture, right? He elevated the requirement. And before, it was just the married folk who were under this, um, uh, this commandment of adultery. But Jesus says, no, let me go ahead and raise the bar for you. And so we see in Matthew 5, 27 and 28, he says, you have heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so Jesus is not just uh, speaking to us married people, but also you single people as well. So you didn't escape that one by any means. Jesus is elevating this view, so we all know, we all understand that. But let me just, let me just take you over to Job as well. 
Because when I first heard that whole, well, if you, if you did it in your heart, it's just as bad as you doing it. And I thought, that's not true. That's not true. That's not true. Because I know if people didn't commit that action um, in the physical, then their marriage can still stay intact. But some people uh, have only done it in their heart, and their marriage is okay. I was young and naive at that time. But I realized that that actually is just, you know, a slide going that direction. But look at Job's view. Job's view is something that it just really, um, Jesus raised the level. But man, Job's words concerning the heart is incredible to me. He says in Job chapter 31, verse 9 through 12, he says, If my heart, if my heart has been enticed toward a woman, and I have lain in wait at my neighbor's door, then let my wife grind for another and let others bow down on her. For that would be a heinous crime. That would be an iniquity to be punished by the judges. For that would be a fire that would consume as far as Abaddon. And it would burn to the root of all my increase. If my heart had been enticed toward another woman. Wow. I see three things right away. He says this. That if my heart has affection. If I waited for a moment for a, a, another woman at her, at her door, that I might be with her. He says, then let my wife become somebody else's slave. Let her grind for him and make meal for him. And then let him bow down upon her. That actually is not a real sexual term. It's more of a sex slave term. All because his heart was not right. And then he says, for if my heart was enticed by a woman, it would be a fire that would destroy the very source of all my blessings in life. How many of us would say, if my heart was enticed towards another person's spouse, that I pray my spouse would become their slave, a sex slave, and also that the, the source of all my blessings and increase would be burnt to the very root. That is a measure that really convicted me. I thought, Lord, why is it that Job is so extreme? Because he understands there is a design in marriage that, that, that portrays Christ, not only with the bride, but also with the Trinity that's so important for us, for you and I, to display to the world. You should know that marriage says something about God. And since it says something about him because he created it, then, uh, then he decides what marriage uh, represents and its intent and its design. Can I tell you this morning that marriage is a physical model of a spiritual relationship. That's why it's so important that marriage is a physical model of a spiritual relationship. It's not only the representation of Christ and his relationship with the, the, the bride, but also the physical representation of the triune nature of God. The Trinity is at, is at, at play here. We see it at work here. And just in case you skip Trinity 101, let me just take you there real fast. So Jesus, the Son, is begotten of the Father. The Holy Spirit proceeds. That means he goes out both from the Father and the Son. In this sense, they are all three different persons, but yet one in their essence. And so the Son is begotten, and the Holy Spirit proceeds from both of them. This exact same thing is seen in the family, in the marriage. Marriage is that physical model slash representation of the Trinity in man, and that man is made in the image of God, the woman who proceeds from the man. 
and, and proceeded from the man and the woman are the children. And so we see this same um, uh, relationship at work there. So here's what you need to know is that it's very important that our marriages are, in, are whole and intact because this thing represents who God is and his relationship to the church, to all mankind. Can I tell you that way before church ever existed, way before any other uh, institution existed, the marriage existed. That means that this is the primary and most important way that the Lord is representing to us the Trinity and his relationship with the church. So if you're Satan, it is very advantageous for you to destroy what we have as a physical picture of who God is in relation to the church and to himself. And so adultery, let me back up and say this, uh, in case it's not up there already, yes, marriage is a physical picture of spiritual reality. Adultery is the destruction of marriage. It's an attempt to destroy the picture of the triune nature of God. And by extension, that, is, that destroys the unity of God's nature. That is a very important thing. To say that God is not unified creates a whole host of theological problems. A whole host of theological problems. We do not want God to be disconnected. We want when God's wrath come towards us, we want him to be unified in his wrath as he is his love. When his holiness comes down and pronounces to be unrighteous, we also want his mercy and his grace. God is singular. He does not do things disconnected of himself. All of who God is does all of what God does. And so if he's not unified, then he is only extending aspects and attributes of his life towards us in that moment. But I need all of God, mercy, grace, love, and truth to come down and discipline me, encourage me, or hold me accountable in areas for my growth. I need a unified God. And adultery is an attempt to destroy that picture that people see. And so if I'm Satan, I'm very, um, I'm very interested on keying in and destroying uh, marriage because it, in fact, is the dismembering of God's trinity and therefore his unity. And all God's people said amen. Are you with me? Yes. Y'all going to go to the theological class this morning, but there you go. Check it off. Let's talk about Satan's strategy. How, how successful has he been as it comes to, as it pertains to marriages in history. In his book, uh, J.D. Unwin, I don't recommend you read it. It's a very difficult read. Um, feel free if you want to. He wrote in 1934, and uh, he wrote a book called Sex and Culture. He, uh, wow, this book is so much. 5,000 years of history he had researched. Over 80 different tribes on every continent, six different civilizations, all of them produced the exact same evidence that's repeatable. And that is this, is that three generations after the sexual revolution of that tribe, that culture, or that civilization, three generations after that, guess what happened? It was the end of that culture, the end of that civilization, the end of that tribe. Every time, over 5,000 years, it never broke. Over 80 different tribes and cultures that were disconnected from each other. Over six different civilizations, all of it was the same. Do you know why all of it was the same? Because the strategy was the same. It was to di diminish that. Here's some things that happened. 
after the sexual um, uh, uh, revolution of that civilization, tribe, or culture. One, artistic creativity exploded. Painting and abstractness and pottery and instruments, those things became very widely known. And also one key um, uh, feature was this, that men became more effeminate. They became less manly. And they began to seek a culture where everyone was accepted. And so promiscuity and homosexuality went straight through the roof. Because they sought to establish a culture that embraced their new virtues. The funny thing was this, is that every single time, the culture that they sought to establish was a culture that was always forgotten. Always forgotten. And that culture was always the death knell um, to that civilization. According to Unwin, here's what he says. He says, the whole of human history does not, by the way, he was an atheist. He didn't care anything about God at all. The whole of human history does not contain a single instance of a group becoming civilized unless it has been absolutely monogamous. Nor is there any example of a group retaining its culture after it has adopted less rigorous customs. But can I tell you that although that was written in 1934 and America wasn't in its profile, it's in its profile now. As we look in the 60s into the early 70s, we saw the sexual revolution happen. And most important, we saw uh, uh, feminism and social justice and even recently Black Lives Matter. All of, the, all of them begin to, to, to dive into the social justice movement. And that particular movement, however you want to color its flavor, has come to destroy this nuclear family concept. Can I tell you that, that on these two fronts specifically, that being feminism, and some of y'all thought, I thought feminism was a good thing because it's just women responding to men who don't want to do what they're supposed to do. Not tonight at all. We'll see that here in just a second. But it, they have put it this way, that marriage has been labeled as a, an oppressive and has been deemed as a device to oppress women for the gain of the patriarchal institution. In other words, men made this marriage thing up so they could oppress women. Can I tell you that men will not, uh, unsaved man will never make marriage up to oppress women. We are not worried about monogamy if we are in our flesh and in of our sin. That's, that's ridiculous to say that a man says, no, you know what we should do? We should oppress women by marrying them and not let them be with anybody else. Men are not that way. We are beasts at best, trying to find as many women as possible to spread and conquer our seed. We are not monogamous unless we are saved, redeemed, and reformed, or unless we are um, uh, culturally pressured in to those types of things. Women are not conquered because of marriage. <laughs> it's just insane to me to think that way. In his book, God, Marriage, and Family, Andreas Kostenberger, he's a uh, very pronounced biblical scholar. He says, I have found in my research that the world's current view on human freedom and self-determination are the supreme principles for human relationships. Can I run that by you again? Human freedom and self-determination are the supreme principles for human relationships. For this reason, we see the decline of marriage away from the biblical and Christian Judeo model as major progress. That, think about that, that marriage, no longer, marriage is no longer a, something that we would say is progressive, but now we, we want to say that it's a progress to move away from marriage. Ari Hortman, in his uh, speech, gave in Mexico, he's a UN representative, he denounced the idea that high rates of divorce and out-of-wedlock births represent a social crisis claiming that they represent instead the triumph 
of human rights against the patriarchy. Can I just read that again so it'll just soak into you? He denounced the idea that high rates of divorce and out-of-wedlock births represent a social crisis. That's not a social crisis. What it is instead is the triumph of human rights against the patriarchy. In other words, it's better to have women raising children by themselves than to have a man lead the household again. That was in 2009. Things have gotten a little bit worse. Linda Gordon, she's a part of the first wave feminism. She's a, a Yale professor, teaches the, um, uh, at the University of New York. She writes, the nuclear family must be destroyed. No woman should have to deny herself any opportunities because of her social or special responsibilities to her children. Mm. I hope you guys are agreeing with me this morning. In 1971, the Declaration of Feminism says this, marriage has existed for the benefit of man and a legally sanctioned method of control over women, and we must work to destroy it. The end of the institution of marriage is a necessary condition for the liberation of women. Therefore, it is important for us to encourage women to leave their husbands and not live individually with men. Can I tell you, that's what unsafe men want to do that. We don't want to pay your bills. We don't want to raise your kids. We just want to have sex and leave you. So you're doing the world a favor when it comes to a man who's apart from Christ, doesn't love Christ, doesn't know how to love his wife. You are not doing yourselves a favor. But you understand, this is not women's bad way of thinking. This is the strategy of the enemy. Using women to think that what is right or what is wrong is actually right. That's why it's so important for you to know your word. Because God has made provision for you. Women, can I tell you that if a man will love you like Christ loved the church, you will know no greater love on earth. Physically. It's important for us to have that. And so that is his current strategy towards us. So I don't know how much you're wrapped up in politics, but just know that the enemy is hard at work. And if we're looking at three generations, that's kind of a scary thought. But I think we all agree we're starting to see the downslide of our civilization. So they say an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of, it's a pound of cure. That's the word, cure. Y'all never heard that before? <laughs> okay. An ounce of provision is worth a pound of cure. So as I'm talking to your marriages this morning, here's what I want you to know. Let's talk about how to prevent adultery and not recover from it. Because nobody wants to say, oh, Pastor Scott, I'm so glad I'm here today. I've been trying to figure out not how to not commit adultery on my wife. This is good. This is a good day. I'm glad you're preaching this stuff. I know you guys will not say that obviously out in the open. But this morning, I want to talk about that. I think it's very important. And just so you think, you know what? I'm never... I'm just not the type. I'm just not the type to commit adultery. Can I tell you, that's what I thought too. You thought, oh, well, you thought too. What, what happened, God? What happened? No. But let me just tell you what, what I know for sure is that when I look at my life, I think, Lord, I don't, I don't feel like there's any propensity in me, you know, to, to, to have an, a, an affair. But what I do know is that I've never had a heart so on fire for God that the Lord told everybody in the world, Scott, he has a heart after my own heart. 
I've never, I've never been a king like King David who was so loyal that even when Saul tried to kill him and all the people knew he was anointed to be king and he was, he was praised to be king by the people and he was called to be king and, and, and the king was trying to kill him and he could have killed the king, yet he did not kill the king because he was loyal to Saul. He was a very loyal man. I don't know that I got those types of loyalties. I also know that I never slayed no giant killer as well. I know that I'm not like King David I cannot say that my heart after God is better than King David. And if I can't say that, then I cannot say I am completely safe from adultery. So follow with me for a second. Because the point simply is this, is that no one is above being tempted. Each and every one of us have desires and can be tempted. But can I tell you that long before David ever committed adultery with his body, he committed it with his heart and his mind. And this is the slide that we see. Look at chapter 11, 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 2. It says, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house. And he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about her, a woman. And, and one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam? the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. And so David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Notice the three stages. First off, it was his mind. He saw the roof. He saw from the roof the woman that was very beautiful. He allowed his mind, first off, to go places that his heart should never and his body should never as well. But somehow we feel like our mind is disconnected from our heart and our body. That somehow it can compartmentalize. And men, we're really good at this. We're really good at compartmentalizing stuff. This is work. This is job. This is the, this is, you know, the, the house. This is our wife. This is our kids. We can compartmentalize. But you cannot compartmentalize sin. It makes you think it's in its box, but it'll never be in its box. And so here David begins to fantasize about having sex with, uh, with Bathsheba. And he moves from the mind into the heart. Can I tell you that at this mind stage, you just need to know, number one, uh, is that this is the stage where you would tell yourself, no, I would never actually do this. I would never do that. It would hurt my, my family and my reputation and my character. I would never do that, but I would think about it. Don't buy into the lie that you would tell yourself, I'll never actually do that. If you'll never actually do that, then quit thinking about it. Stop thinking about it. Quit, quit telling lies to yourself that I love my spouse and my kids too much. I would never bring that hurt upon them. If you do believe that, then quit thinking about it. Because the whole time your heart is convicting you, your mind is starting to spill over and captivating your heart. It's pulling your heart to this side. Because here's the thing, is that sin is always an overflow from the compartments of our life. It starts in our mind, overflows until our mind is full, fills our heart until our heart can't take it no more. And then our body must express the overflow from the, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth, and the body does. So then we go to the heart, and he says that he, he sent and he inquired about the woman. He inquired about the woman. And then it came to the place where he said, send messengers and take her. And so what we see is that it always starts in the mind, moves into the heart, until it's expressed through the body. So never feel like you're, you're too dis... It'll never happen to you. That's the first sign of failure, is to say that I, a fallen person... And not possible of sin. Be on guard. So how do we get through that together? How in the world do you and I maintain our marriages? I want to give you seven 
truths this morning on how to fortify our marriages with acts of prevention. Seven ounces of prevention this morning. The first thing is resolve issues together. You got to resolve issues together this morning. So when you resolve issues, you have to understand that there are times in your marriage that you don't agree. Have y'all ever, have y'all experienced that yet? Anybody have a disagreement in their marriage? Colton, have you had a disagreement? (laughs) I just got married like two weeks ago. (laughs) We were disagreeing on the day of. I don't know. I'm just messing with him. But I know that in marriage, you have, there's there's just going to be disagreements. Not just now, not tomorrow, but the next day. And you may even disagree on where you're going to be buried at. It will last until, right? But the thing is simply this, is that you got to resolve in your life and in, in, in your marriage that no matter what you're disagreeing over, you've got to stay in the game. Okay? So here's the conflict. Julie, would you help me out here? Uh, yeah, she, she loves being in front of everybody. So here's the thing. So here's the conflict, right? And, and what, we temp, what we like to do, some of y'all, not all of us are this way, but some of y'all, we got a conflict, and maybe like me, I'm the one that says, hey, we got a conflict. We got a conflict right here. We got to talk about it. We got to talk about it. And some of y'all are like, I'm not talking about it. No conflict. It's just going to go away. It'll just fix itself. It'll be okay. But the thing is, is we got to make sure if we have this conflict, this issue, we got we to gotta work at it. We got to stay in the game, right? We got to stay in the game. And as long as we're at this place in our conversation, we're good. Now, in the conversation, sometimes, here's what we like to do. We like to say, <laughs> and that's exactly what we do, right? Because if I'd have, if I'd have just been Julie, and I'd have been not here the next two weeks, <laughs> if I'd have just beamed her, she would, have, she would have defended herself like that, right? And the whole point would have been to move to defense. Don't hurt me. And so the issue is simply this, is that we're not, don't, don't go away just yet. And, and so the issue is this, is that we're not trying to communicate, I'm right, you're wrong, I know the right way, here's what you did. I'm trying, in fact, here's what I'm trying to do, I'm trying to get you to help me. If, in fact, if you would just take a, a ball to someone and just randomly throw it to people, they automatically know what to do. They automatically know what to do. The default in you is to rescue. See that? See how she reached outside her comfort zone? To grab something. Thank you, baby. That's, that's ex- the exact same way with you guys. She did a great job. Yes, wonderful. I'll I pay you later. So that's my point. Is number one, stay in the game. And don't hurl your side. Don't hurl your issue. Because the other side's just defending themselves. They can't really play in the game. You're making them leave the game. Because you think you're so right. Or you got to make sure they know they're, or sometimes we're just hurt. We want to hurt them back. The goal is simply this, is that if you're really struggling, pitch it out there and let them make the reach. Because really what they want to do is help you. So stay in the game. Second thing is this. is train your thoughts. Train your thoughts. That means you got to control your input. What's coming in to the eye gate, the ear gate. You got to know those things that are coming in. You say, well, Pastor Scott, uh, you know, 
I'm not really susceptible to a lot of things. You know, movies don't affect me and songs don't affect me. Podcasts don't affect me and the news don't affect me because I watch Fox. Those things don't affect me. You know, I'm good. Uh, But can I tell you, they do affect you. They do affect you. I know because I'm around you. So they affect you. No, I know they affect you because here's how I know. Because Paul says that those things that affect you in a way that is not wholesome are things that you should not be thinking about. He says in Philippians 4, 8, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So, man, that, that filter is, that's not a real fun filter to use on your life, you know. If they put that filter on Snapchat, it would never be used. Nobody wants to look at the world and be like, can't do that. I can't do that. I can't do that. This filter ain't no good. But you know what? Here's what this filter does do. It maintains that marriage intact. It it allows those kids to love mom and dad and respect mom and dad and maybe even resemble and repeat that marriage that they see in mom and dad. That's what that filter does. It's not always the fun filter, but I can tell you that it is the firm filter that will produce a strong family. That's what we need. So here's an exercise for you. What is going into your brain? Write down a list of inputs into your life. What are you listening to? What is the movies that you watch? I'm not here. I'm not, listen, I don't know what y'all are watching. You may, you may watch uh, Little House on the Prairie every day. I don't know. I'm just saying write it down. Write your podcast down, your music down, your conversation with your friends that you willfully choose. To write those things down because those are the things that are going in you, in you. Those are the inputs. But not only do you need to control your uh, inputs, you need to change your thoughts. Change them. James chapter 4, 6 through 8 says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Notice this. Resist the devil. That means he is giving you something. He wants you to have something. He's put it in your way, whether it's temptation or desire. He says, resist it, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. When we see the word resist the devil, that's really a Greek uh, uh, depiction of wrestling. That that they're wrestling with the devil. And that your moves ought to be full and instantaneous. Let me give you an example. Gannon, can you come up here just for a second? When you are wrestling with something, here's how you make decisions when it's time to resist it. You have to change your thoughts. You don't change your thoughts gradually. When a thought comes into your head, you think, well, I probably shouldn't be thinking about what that looks like, feels like, smells like, probably should put that out of my mind and not think about it no more, probably shouldn't draw pictures about it, probably shouldn't Google about it, probably shouldn't, you know, you probably shouldn't do those things. It should be instantaneous. So Gannon represents the believer full of the Word of God, all right? It's a strong dude right here, okay? I represent the enemy because I'm just weak. We really ain't got nothing except our bluff on you. But here's what I know. Turn around for me, Gannon. Come over here in the, in the limelight, brother. That's where I want you to be. All right, turn that way. Now, now I want you to slowly decide to resist me. I'm going to give you all I got, all right? I want you to slowly decide to resist me. You decide when 
you desire when to resist me. Okay, now I want you to instantaneously resist me, okay? Instantaneously resist me. Oh, come on, brother. Get it. It's not the illustration. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Gannon. Go ahead and sit down. That's how you're supposed to be. As soon as that thought comes into your mind, you should be, I'm getting it. I'm about to stand up on this thought. You ain't going to push me around here. But you don't go, well, maybe I should activate the power of God in my life and decide to, oh, I messed up already. Just like I messed up already the last time, the time before that, the time before that, and the time before that. Maybe what you should do is the moment that thought comes into your head and my head, we should remind ourselves who we are and what we are to do and stand firm. Say, I'm not going to engage in something that will undo my marriage. The third thing is this, is that when we face temptation, run. That's what you're supposed to do. If you're asleep, I'm sorry. Run. You're supposed to run. So many other times in Scripture, we're supposed to stand firm against the enemy. But when it comes to sexual temptation, you know to do one thing. Run. Wish I had that song. I should, I should have cued that song. Run. You know, and just take off running. Here's why. 1 Corinthians 6.18 says this. Flee from sexual immorality. Not overcome, not, not with the word of God. No, flee, run, get out of there, go. Don't try it. You're not that strong. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually moral person sins against his own body. So get out of there before you sin against yourself. Genesis 39, 11 through 12, we know this story well. Potiphar's wife, she was, she was, she was, she was fly. That's the word I used to back in my day, she was fly. But one day, Joseph, when he went to the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. Joseph ran. Joseph ran. He, he watched Forrest Gump early in life and realized when faced with temptation, although Forrest didn't really do that, he... he he didn't, he didn't run. But anyway, you should run. You should run. Can I tell you, what does run look like in 2022? Running in 2022 looks like this. You might need to unfollow some people on social media. That's what running may look like. Running may be blocking people, taking people out of your normal circuit of conversations. It may be changing your cell number. It may be deleting social media accounts. It may be changing your job. It may be moving your family. But whatever you got to do, you better run. Run. And here's why you run and don't fight. Ephesians 5.3 says this, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. During Paul's day, sexual morality was everywhere. It was completely the norm. And Paul was saying, uh, he was telling us, don't be caught in the places where people would categorize you as the norm. Run. Get yourself out of there. And so for you and I, we don't even want, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's like this. Um, 
when we're living above reproach, I tell my girls all the time, I don't care if you did sin or if you did not sin, you should not be accused of sinning. That is living above reproach. If I'm running from those things, they can't even see, well, Pastor Scott was, you know, no, run. Number four is this, recognize when you're vulnerable. Psychologists have identified the factors that make you most vulnerable, and here they are. The, the, the things that make you most vulnerable in life are when you're hungry, when you're angry, when you're lonely, and when you're tired. And so when you come to a place of vulnerability, you need to halt. Remind yourself, am I hungry, am I angry, am I lonely, am I tired? Because when you're hungry, you, you, you'll do almost anything to feed the body. When you're angry, you're up for vengeance, retaliation. I'll show him, I'll show her. Go away, don't do that. When you're lonely, we just desire to be around people we don't need to be around, and we create susceptibility in our life to be tempted, and when we're tired, we just lower all of our standards. And so when we're in these places, we need to make sure that we run in those moments. Can I tell you that if you're struggling with desires of the flesh, if you get yourself in that moment, let me give you an acronym. In fact, I would encourage you, I don't want to take time to explain this morning, but John Piper does a great teaching on the acronym ANTHEM, A-N-T-H-E-M, how to overcome the desires of the flesh. I recommend you check it out. It's a six-part series. He says, first it's to avoid, then you say no, then you turn, then you hold, then you enjoy, and then you move. I taught that so many times to men's groups, and uh, everyone I've ever taught that to said, Pastor, this is good stuff. And so if you're struggling with those desires of the flesh, learn this particular acronym, ANTHEM. Number five, establish areas of accountability. And can I just quickly say that accountability is communication that nullifies investigation. Accountability is the communicating that nullifies investigating. If I'm telling Julie where I'm at, what I'm doing, if she has access to all that I have access to, she doesn't have to hire a private investigator to dig into my life to see if I'm being faithful because she knows all I'm doing. And so I don't know where it is in your life. Julie and I were talking about this a while ago. I said, you know, here's some things I think we need to pay attention to in our life to make sure that you don't just have access to it because she knows she's going to ask me, but to make sure she has whatever she wants to without even having to ask me, she has access to those things. And so one of those things for, for us that we're going to work on, and let me just challenge you as well, is to make sure that every password I know, she knows. That every access to an account I have, she has. Make sure that in your life that you've provided so much accountability in your life that even if you wanted to have an affair, you couldn't. That is the goal. Because you and I both know that failure happens in isolation. When you have a secret part of your life, look for that place. The enemy knows where your secret at. He knows where you're private at. And just know that it's always, life is always better in teams. Right? It's always better in teams. We're always better together. Number six, learn to ask for help. I think one of the strategies of the enemies is to, is to get you to think that your situation is unique. Many times in marriage, as I talk to people and counsel them, what I, what I heard them was this, is that, you know, I don't know if anybody else struggles with this or not, but we, <laughs> and I want to say, no, everyone struggles with that. Just no one talks about it. 
And that's the enemy. The enemy wants you to think that the, the problem in your marriage is unique to your situation and your personality and the dynamic of that all together. Can I tell you that the enemy is a liar and he will lie to you good and say, listen, it's just you. Nobody else is struggling with this. That is a lie. Because when you sit down to honest couples, they're saying, well, psh, we do too. And that is the goal of the enemy is to conceal, right? Because failure, failure thrives. Failure happens in isolation. Don't isolate your marriage. And don't think your, your marriage will fix itself. No one drives a car thinking it'll really fix itself. <laughs> we might hope that for another 10 miles. But we know that at the end of the day, that car will never fix itself. So don't wait for failure until you ask for help. Ask ahead of time. Can I tell you the thing that stands between hurt and hope is pride. So chuck the pride out. What values most to you? Does your marriage matter more to you than your pride? Or is your pride top priority? Because the difference between or the distance between hurt and hope is your pride. And number seven is to learn to forgive. Learn to forgive. Whew. We've been through this moment so many times. One of the most powerful things that you can really master the art of in a marriage is the art of forgiveness. Let me turn your attention to Luke chapter 7, verse 44. I love this illustration here. It says, then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. And so therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Can I tell you this, is that she was, she was forgiven much, and therefore she loved much. It wasn't that she loved much and so she was forgiven much. Actually, it was forgiveness that increased her capacity to love. Mm, I wish you would hear me this morning. That forgiveness increases capacity to love. I don't know about you, but I know I have been forgiven greatly by a great Savior. And because he's, he has forgiven so much in my life, I can't do anything or anything else other than to love him in that same capacity. She wasn't forgiven because of her great love. She had great love because she was forgiven much. I want you to know that the measure of love she gave was determined by the measure she received. Spouse, do you hear me? You better learn to forgive. I'm not saying you better learn to forgive. I'm saying you better learn to forgive. Number one, the Lord says if you don't forgive, you will not find forgiveness in him. But can I tell you that you will, you will gain a greater spouse when you learn to forgive. Because who is forgiven little loves little. Maybe the reason why your spouse doesn't love so much is because you don't forgive so much. You got the scoreboard on the wall. You're marking it up every time. You got your scribe out there recording every action. I want to remind you that that's not how the Lord treats you. 
The Lord doesn't remember your every sin. Matter of fact, he says specifically in Micah 7, 19, he will again, he will again, Israel, have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. God is saying here that even though Israel's sin was abounding much, he says he'll cast it into the sea. In Micah's day, you couldn't go scuba diving for anything. When it went to the depth of the sea, it was not recoverable. It was washed over. In fact, for you to go recover that offense that God put in the sea would cost you your life because you did not have the ability to go get it. Can you hear me this morning that when we pull back sins from people's lives, it will cost you. It will cost you. And so hear me this morning. Learn to forgive. Learn to love. I know that myself, there was a time when Julie and I, 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 I held some things back from her and I didn't want her to know and and the Lord worked on my heart for a couple years. And I said, Lord, I, you don't understand. <laughs> I mean, she's going to be angry, Lord. She's going to be angry. And the Lord kept bringing to my remembrance 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 7 through 8. And that one particular thing, it says that love does not judge, right? That love does not count our offenses uh, forever, that love restores and rejoices in the truth. And then I, I came to that, I was like, wait, 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 okay, did I read that right? Love rejoices in the truth? That if I tell the truth, that love rejoices in this? And so here's the test. I thought, okay, Lord, if there's ever a time in, 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 in my life I need, I need your word to be true, it better be true here. And I came to Julie and I told her the things that I needed to tell her. And she was so good. She just forgave me and said, okay, here's what we're going to do. Here's the plan going forward. And I want to tell you that that is possible, not because me and Julie have a great marriage. It's possible because I relied upon the Word of God to fix the things in my life, in my heart, and the Word came through. The Word came through. Success in your marriage is not based on you. It's based on your obedience to the Word. The Word will always deliver, always deliver. And so this morning, I want to do something. I want to, I want to stretch you this morning. I know that in the audience, there are several different types of marriages. There are marriages that are healthy. You're doing great. God, we're thankful for that. But there's also some marriages that got some tension in the room. You got some issues you're working on. There's also some marriages that probably have failures in the room. And even though you may have been forgiven or maybe you've not, you're still struggling with those failures. And to this, this morning, if you're able, what I want you to know is that I, I, want us to, um, I want us to couple a physical action with a spiritual decision. And here's what I'm asking this morning. If in your marriage you want to fortify your marriage against the enemy and his strategy to destroy your marriage, or you need forgiveness in your marriage, I want you and your spouse to come right down here. We're going to pray together. We're going to make a physical action. We're going to couple it with a spiritual decision. If you want fortification of your marriage, defense, or you want forgiveness in your marriage, I need you to come down here. Now, if that's not the two things you want in your marriage, that's fine. Well, well, you can pray from your seat. But if your marriage needs fortification or forgiveness, 
truth be known is that we need those things that are so essential to our life. We need forgiveness. We need fortification. But here's the most important thing I know about marriages, y'all, is that this is where our culture rests for direction. This is the direction of our, of our church, the direction of our city, the direction of our world, the direction of the church Rest upon these relationships and your willingness to say this, Lord, I need you to fortify my marriage. I need you to raise up walls that the enemy cannot penetrate or come over. I don't want anything. I don't want to struggle at all. Maybe I failed in the past, but today I'm raising up walls of defense that everything inside these walls will be whole and strong. And my marriage will speak of the faithfulness of God. And my marriage will speak of the unity of the Trinity. Or maybe you say, you know what, Pastor Scott, I just need forgiveness. We've been struggling. What I want you to know is that there's no other place in life to find forgiveness for your marriage like forgiveness from God. And so as we pray this morning, here's what I want you to pray. If you need forgiveness, first ask this, that the Lord will first forgive you for holding it from him. And then seek forgiveness with your spouse. If you're looking for fortification, agree with your spouse this morning and say, we're going to stand, me and you. If, if we, we're not going to get out of the game, we're going to stay in the game. We're going we're to continue to communicate. We're going to open up our life and be transparent. We're going to fortify this, this, this marriage. When you go home today, ask your spouse, what does that mean? What does fortification look like between you and me? Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, I ask you. Lord, you see these marriages, God. You know, Lord, he needs forgiveness. Lord, we all do, really. And you know, Lord, who, who needs our marriage to be fortified. And I pray, God, this morning that you would see these hearts, Lord, and that you will do just that. That you will fortify them and that you will provide forgiveness. God, give us a heart, God, that openly, God, and constantly, Lord, longs to give love and affirmation, but forgiveness too. I pray that in those moments and those times, God, you will make these relationships, God, a single solitary unit. God, that they will become one flesh, whole and together. And so, God, I pray this morning, use us, God. Use our families, Lord. Use our children, God. As we begin to raise children up, God, who know who you are. They would see our marriage, God, and they would repeat, God, the patterns that we set before them. That we would disciple them to have strong marriages, to be willing to forgive and to be forgiven. God, I pray, use us, Lord, to be those examples that they might imitate in their lives who they've seen us to be. And so, Father, I pray, would you bring alignment this morning, Father, in Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be, you may be seated as you go to your seats this morning let me just remind you of what your marriage is your marriage is a light to the world I don't know where you're at but I want you to remind yourself that when you're in Walmart and you're talking about which salsa to get the world is looking at your light when you're asking yourself which uh, how much gas you should spend. Should I buy a half a tank or three quarters of a tank? Because it might come down next week. It might go up. Just know that any arguing you might have, the world is watching. And you know, I know this, know this as well. If the people know that you are a Christian marriage, they're looking for two things in your life. Very serious two things in your life. Hear me. Men, 
The world is looking at you to see if you will love your wife. Women, the world are, is looking at you to see if you will respect your husband. They are looking for those things. Ephesians chapter 5, 22 to 33. Read with me, and then I'm done today. Paul says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor and then without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish, husbands. And in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. They're looking to you in terms of love and respect. One let me just throw this out there. When we start our Wednesday night discipleship classes in September, Tim and Charmaine are going to be teaching a class to marriages on love and respect. I would put it on your calendar and make priority. We need to know what that looks like.